Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves against the, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Eric and Jake. Jake, thanks for leading the music wherever you went. Um, you did a great job, but of course, anything would have been an improvement over last week. If you guys were here last week, you can realize my voice had disappeared in between practice and the worship service, and so it was, it was pretty awful. The good news is, though, you guys sing really well, and so you held up really well where I was, where I was lacking. And so it wasn't that big of a deal. But I was nervous. I was afraid. I was thinking through this week. I'm like, gosh, am I going to get my voice back? Am I going to be able to preach on Sunday? Because preaching is not like singing. It's not like you guys can just join in with me while I preach. Um, I can't rely on you in that way. And so this morning I was grateful to have my voice back. But through the week I was a little bit anxious. Uh, people get anxious from time to time, right? It's pretty common because there's a lot of different things that can cause anxiety. Uh, perhaps you've started a new job. Or perhaps you've just lost a job. Maybe you've got finals coming up. You're worried about politics. You're worried about the bills, keeping your family safe, coming up with a pastoral prayer on the spot. Maybe you're just worried about relationships in general. Just thinking about those things, though, right, can give you butterflies in your stomach. You get really nervous. Uh, There's a restlessness to anxiety, right? Being anxious is a common thing. And if the reports are true... I think they probably are, it's becoming even more common. There was a survey from the American Psychiatric Association that came out last month, just in May, that said that 40% of those who responded were more anxious this year than they were last year. I know that this is just a common thing right now. There's a whole bunch of new books coming out on the subject of anxiety. It seems like more and more people are on edge. In fact, they've even called our generation... Uh, an age of anxiety. I don't know if you guys feel that same thing. Now, of course, some people do have serious anxiety disorders where they need medication and they need counseling, and it's a a serious thing. But other of us uh, just have a low-level anxiety, some sort of restlessness that we can't really even explain. I want to suggest that there is a source of anxiety that could be in our lives that we might not have considered before. This is not the only source of anxiety, but I think it's one legitimate source. And it's not the one they're going to hear about very often because it's not going to be in the APA's report. It doesn't come up in the news. 
It's this. I want to suggest that when we reject God's authority in our lives, it feeds our anxiety. When we reject God's authority in our lives, it feeds our anxiety. Because God's authority brings clarity to our lives. God's authority brings clarity to us. We've, I mean, we've all got questions like, what is right? What is truly right? What is truly wrong? Uh, what is the meaning of life? Where is history headed? And if we don't have questions to these answers, we get disoriented. We don't know where we're at. We get lost. We get lost in the fog of our own mind, of our own heart, of culture, just whoever's ideas come up. And all that ambiguity can make us restless. I think it can even make us angry. So God's authority and believing his authority, believing what it means in our lives, I think, can bring clarity to us, and it could alleviate some of our anxiety. Because when we reject it, we're just drifting around without an anchor in life. I think Psalm 2 has something to say to us this morning about our anxiety. Most importantly, though, most importantly, Psalm 2 is going to say something to us about the authority of Jesus Christ. So the big idea of Psalm 2 is, I believe, submit to the authority of Jesus while there's still time. Submit to the authority of Jesus while there's still time. Now, I know you guys know this already, but Psalm 2 is a poem. These psalms are poetic in nature, and so we have to, we have to spend some time to try to interpret it. It's packed with language. And there's a lot of meaning in that language. And so we're going to try to take some time just to flesh it out a little bit. And you'll notice, uh, hopefully you've got your Bible. Do you have your paper Bible open in front of you? Electronic Bible's okay, I guess. But a paper Bible, it's ideal. I want you to see how it's broken up in the text. If you'll notice in your translation there, it's got four different sections, probably in your translation. It's separated it into four different sections. And our sermon is going to follow that same structure. If it helps you, you can even think of those four distinct sections as scenes in a play. I think it was scenes as we're going along through this poem, and we're just going to go from one scene to the next. One commentator, before we start, one commentator said something that I thought was very helpful to get a handle on this psalm, to help us interpret it. And so I want to, I want to commend this to you before we begin. See if you notice this as we walk through the psalm. Uh, Every one of those four scenes that we spoke about, those four sections, each one of them has its own distinct voice. Uh, in the first little section, that first scene, you'll see that the kings of the earth are speaking. And then in that second section, you'll see that the, the God himself, Yahweh, the Lord, is speaking. And then the third section, it's Jesus, the, the anointed one, who's speaking. And then fourth, it's as if the Holy Spirit himself is speaking to us, telling us what this psalm means. Those will be the four voices that we'll see here in this text. It's man speaking, then the Father, and then the Son, and then the Holy Spirit. Well, we definitely need the Holy Spirit to speak to us here this morning, right now. So before we even try to understand and apply and interpret this psalm, let's ask God and his Holy Spirit for their help. Pray with me. Father, we are humbled to be able to gather in this building this morning to open your word. What a gift it is to us. 
Father, my prayer is for us here this morning that we would sense your spirit here, that where there needs to be conviction of sin, that would be here, where there needs to be encouragement, that would be here, and in all things that your son would be glorified. Father, I pray that you would calm our nerves, and then as we leave here this morning, we would be assured of the fact that one day your son will establish and complete his kingdom on earth. And that's great news for us. Help us to understand your word. Help us not to apply it to other people, but to ourselves. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Scene one. This is what I want us to see in that first little section. Worldly kings anxiously resist God's rule. We see this in verses 1 to 3. Let me read verses 1 to 3 for us. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? One of the most brilliant benefits of the book of Psalms that I think that we sometimes underestimate is that it's an emotional book. Psalms is a very emotional book. It it helps us explain our emotions. Have you ever had emotions pop up in your heart uh, that you just can't explain? Gosh, I don't even know why I feel this way, but I do, and there's nothing I can do about it. I think that's true of many of us from time to time. We don't know why we feel the way that we do oftentimes. But here's the cool thing. The scripture being written by the Holy Spirit has some divine insight into who we are and to how we operate. And so I think the Psalms is really helpful just to help us understand why we feel the way that we do. Why do we have particular emotions? And the particular emotions that I think we gain insight into here are are anger and anxiety. You see that rage that it speaks of. The psalmist begins by asking a rhetorical question. And it's maybe a question that you've been tempted to ask yourself, or maybe something like it. Something like, has the world lost their minds? Is it just me, or has everybody lost their stinking minds recently? This is kind of the rhetorical question that the psalmist asks. And the Hebrew word, the Hebrew word for rage here, the nation's rage, it means that the nations are restlessly, anxiously, angrily, and loudly conspiring. Conspiring against the Lord and his anointed. It's pandemonium. Uh, They've got no chill. So what is it that they're so upset about, though? What is it that got them in this rage? Verses 2 and 3 show us, ultimately, that what they want to do is conspire to come up with a plan to rebel, to rebel against God, to rebel against his anointed. And we need to remember that for the original audience that was reading this psalm, this really has to do with the king of Israel. Uh, Israel was God's uniquely chosen nation, and whenever a new king was going to be installed to reign over Israel, they would put holy oil on their head. They would, they would anoint them. And if you've ever seen maybe some footage of Queen Elizabeth's uh, anointing when she was installed as the Queen of England... Uh, Maybe you've seen the crown. You'll see that scene where they put holy oil on her head. That's kind of the idea. That's why Jesus is the anointed, or the king of Israel is anointed. They anoint her with oil, and in the same way, they anoint the the king of Israel with oil. 
And here it is that we see that the God of Israel and his anointed, most likely David here in this original context, they're the target of a conspiracy. It's a conspiracy of the nations, of the peoples, the kings, the rulers of the world. Nations and peoples across the world are united in their rage against the good king. But I want to sort of spoil the surprise right up front. I know Jake has already mentioned it, but I want you to know that in its ultimate sense, yes, this is David, but in its ultimate sense, this anointed one that is spoken here is Jesus. This anointed one is Christ. I know that his name is never used here. It doesn't say Jesus anywhere in this psalm, and so this could be a little bit confusing. But Psalm 2 is one of the most referenced, most explained psalms that comes up in the New Testament. It comes up over and over again, and so we have a lot of understanding about what this psalm means. It comes up in the book of Hebrews, Acts, uh, Romans, it comes up all over the place. And what it tells us in the New Testament, it tells us that the Lord's anointed ultimately here is Jesus. And that's why in your translation, if you've got the ESV perhaps, anointed is capitalized. You'll see it's got a capital A, speaking of the, the divine Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And what is it that the nations want to conspire about? What's got them so upset? Why are they restless and anxious and rebellious? Well, they want to burst away from God, from God's king, and the bonds and the cords. You think of ropes and chains, bonds and cords there. They want to bust away from his authority. They don't want him having any say in their lives. They think that God's holding them back. And if they could just get freedom from this God and his king, then finally they could have freedom. They'd finally be able to do what they want to do. They think that God's rule is just too restricting and constricting. The Apostle Peter in Acts 4 references this psalm as well. And he explains that when the Romans, and even ironically the the kings, the, the, the high priests of Israel, have plotted together, they're coming together to conspire against Jesus, right? They want to crucify him. They want to put an end to God's anointed one. That really is like the epitome of what Psalm 2 is about. It's really about hatred of Jesus, wanting him to be gone. They don't like his authority. They want to bust his bonds. They're angry with Jesus, and they couldn't settle down. If you remember the story of the crucifixion and that mock trial where they accused him of many things. The Romans, the Jewish priests, they were anxious that he was going to ruin their rule. Like, you're going to mess everything up, man. So they wanted to destroy him. They plotted his death. But, uh, of course, we know that 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 plot was in vain, right? Because Jesus is alive. He was resurrected on the third day and has ascended to the right hand of the Father. That plan was in vain. It didn't work. And some scholars, I think this is really interesting, some scholars think that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are really meant to go together. It's not an accident that they follow one another. It's sort of like they're a matched pair of psalms. And I think they're onto something. Check this out. Uh, Last week, if you were here, we learned from Psalm 1 that uh, the blessed man, the happy man, is the one who meditates on God's word day and night. Meditates. Well, here in Psalm 2, we get the opposite picture. Dan Diffie uh, told me about this this week. He pointed out to me that the Hebrew word Here for plot, the people's plot, that word in Hebrew is the exact same word as meditates from Psalm 1. So the people's plot in vain, it's the same thing as as Psalm 1. So so here's, here's, I think, what that means. For the happy man, the happy man meditates on submitting to God's rule. 
the angry, anxious man meditates on resisting God's rule. So of those two groups, those who meditate on submitting and those who meditate on rejecting, who do you think has the most influence in your life? The ones who trust God or the ones who hate him? Uh, who, who do you spend the majority of your time listening to or hearing from, meditating with, thinking with? Are you inundated with, with news and opinions and philosophies from a worldview that is actually just completely counter to Christ, to God and his anointed one? People who are anxiously resisting God's rule? I think that's most of our experience. I mean, it's kind of hard to avoid it, right? I mean, most of the time that we spend in the world is spent with people who reject Jesus. Might that be a source of anxiety in our lives? Do you wake up and, and scan social media so that, that you'll know what you need to be outraged on any particular day? Do you wake up and watch cable news so you can know uh, what to be anxious about, what to be afraid of, what you need to be worried about? And maybe you turn into talk radio first thing to hear complaints about why everybody's so dumb and evil. It might be a good challenge for us, and I'm going to join you in this, This is my challenge to us. It might be a good challenge to not tune into any of that noise before we've had a chance to meditate on God's word first. Uh, When you wake up in the morning, don't reach for your phone. Don't even reach for the app. Reach for your paper Bible. Spend some time meditating before you turn yourself onto that noise from the world. Maybe just for a couple weeks. To see what it does for the state of your soul. To first meditate on God's word before you're ever exposed to man's angry rebellion. Well, this, this rebellion against God and against Jesus, it's certainly true on a, a big scale, on a, a national scale. It's true. We can see it, of course, across the centuries. We can see it across our culture right now. We think of the current state and affairs uh, in America and how crazy and really sort of inexplicably hostile people become whenever you mention Jesus. They want to cut the ropes and chains away from his authority really everywhere it exists in public sphere. So it's true on a big scale. But my question is, I wonder if you've witnessed this on a a smaller personal scale. Imagine this. Maybe you've been having a meaningful conversation with someone. Uh, It's a friend of yours. Maybe you don't know him that well. But it's a a deep conversation, and it's going well. And you're thinking, man, this would be a really good opportunity just to share the gospel with him. And so you bring it up. And the person's temperament changes immediately. They go from being sort of relaxed and, and, and laid back and chill and interested and to just turning into angry and, and, and distant and rageful. It's as if they're a cat that you picked up and held over a bathtub. And it happens just sort of immediately. Like, what in the world has happened? Well, I think the psalm sort of helps us explain that. People rage against the authority of Jesus in, in, in their lives. And what about our own lives, though? Don't we sometimes set up ourselves as kings of our own lives? And have there not been times in your own heart when you've been angry or resentful against Jesus? You don't like his rule in your life because you think it's too restrictive and you want to cut his bonds and ropes from you. Where instead of singing, let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee, maybe you're singing, let me get these chains and ropes up off me so I can get some freedom and just breathe a little bit. That is not what we want to do. That's why we need to gather together with people and remind ourselves, man, we need to bind our wandering hearts to Christ. This is why it's a great benefit to gather together and and worship with the people of God. 
Jesus would have us know this morning that his, his bonds, his cords, his ropes, his chains, they're not a burden. He himself says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Those cords and those bonds that we are trying to cut off are for our good. He's a different kind of king. Jesus is a different kind of king. What we've seen over and over again is that human kingdoms, over time, tend towards rebellion. They tend towards tyranny. You guys know what tyranny is? Uh, tyranny is uh, authority that's, that's cruel, that's, that's harsh, that's oppressive, that's selfish, that's self-seeking. This is not the sort of king that Jesus is. He is not a tyrannical king. King Jesus is different. Listen, this is, this is huge. The authority of Jesus in your life is never tyrannical. The authority of Jesus in your life is never tyrannical. Never think that. Never believe that for a second. Here's the thing, because you're going to hear this a lot from the people that are raging against him. You're going to hear this a lot. In our day and age, we usually think of authority and freedom as sort of like opposite things that don't go together. But that does not necessarily be, need to be the case. Authority and freedom can go together. And really, they need to go together. Proverbs 29 says that when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people mourn. So there's a, there's a relationship between good authority and rejoicing. And needed to know that Jesus is righteous. And so submitting to his authority in our life, it might be scary at first. I will grant you that. But we're going to find ultimately that it frees us from the tyranny that we create in our own lives. True freedom is never found in yourself. It's found into submitting to the authority of Christ. True freedom is found under the authority of Christ. It's not found in the authority of yourself. The one who made us, the one who knows us, he loves us and he desires what's best for us. He desires life. He desires flourishing for us. And he gave himself up for you. Are you going to submit to him or are you going to be enslaved to the chains of fools? Which will you choose? Because make no mistake, this rebellion is, is foolish. This rebellion is against God and his anointed. It's foolish. But it's also futile. It's never going to work. And that's why this question that begins the psalm here is rhetorical. It's like, what are you guys, are you kidding me? What are they, why are they plotting against God? Are these people out of their minds? Are these people for real? So let's, let's move on now, though, from that first scene where the nations and the peoples are plotting to rebel against God and against his anointed. Let's go to scene two, which takes place in the heavens. Scene two, where God is unafraid in the face of this rebellion. Verses four to six. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So that, that anxiety that we saw in scene one is contrasted here with the, the confidence, the assurance of God. He, he laughs and he ridicules these kings who want to come up with a plan to try to defeat him. He's like, come on, guys. But we need to think carefully. When it, when it says he, he mocks and he laughs, it's not that he thinks that their rebellion is humorous. That's not the case. I think it's a little bit different. And I, I struggled to come up with an illustration for this, but this will have to, to do. You can imagine uh, Muhammad Ali 
in his prime in a ring, uh, maybe in Vegas. And, and it's, it's a prime time card and the, the, the stadium is full and everybody's amped. They're excited. They're waiting to see who is it that Muhammad Ali is going to fight. He's, he's the greatest, right? And so the, the lights drop and the music starts and out walks Barney Fife from the Andy Griffith show. That, that old, overconfident, scrawny fella. What do you think Muhammad Ali would do when Barney Fife climbs in the ring with him? He would laugh, right? He'd say, come on, you can't be serious. You trying to flex on me? Don't be silly. Get out of the ring before you hurt yourself. Come on, son. But obviously, it's much worse than that here because God does not just laugh. It's not where he leaves it. God is angry, and rightly so. God is rightly angry. Think of the oppression and the injustice that comes about when nations and peoples reject the rule of King Jesus. When people don't love God, when they don't love their neighbors as themselves, think about that oppression, that sin, that evil that comes about when that happens. Wars and hatred and evil cannot and will not be tolerated by God forever. The Lord is patient, but he's not blind. He sees and he cares, and he will, as Revelation puts it, he will destroy the destroyers of the world. He hates evil. That's what his wrath is when it speaks. He speaks in his wrath. It's his, his hatred of, of all that's evil. And like a mouse that's tugged on the whisker of a sleeping lion one too many times, the nations are taken aback when the lion wakes up and roars. When he speaks, he terrifies them in his fury. Everybody wants to rule the world, but God has chosen his own leader, his own ruler, his own king, Jesus. And King Jesus trumps all the world's leaders. As you might imagine, he doesn't need a political action committee. Jesus doesn't need to go to fundraising dinners. Jesus does not need pollsters to research his odds of whether or not he's got a good chance in the election. That's not how this works. He's got a really good endorsement, God himself. If God says this is going to be the king, this is going to be the king. So these created beings, these men, these women who have been rebelling against God, these men of flesh, they're so full of rage. When they're met with the the divinity of God, with the holiness, the justice, the wrath of God, they're revealed for what they really are. And now, instead of just anxiety, the nations and people are terrified and so we've, we've seen these worldly rulers, we've seen them coming up with this plan, getting together to think about how they can rebel against God. And now in seed two, we've seen that God is unimpressed, to, to, to say the least. He's not afraid of this rebellion. He's got his own king in mind. And then in this next scene, the king himself speaks, God's chosen king speaks. So let's see this in verses seven to nine again. This is scene three, God's king will have absolute authority. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. I will tell of the decree. We hear here directly from God's anointed one. Remember, again, the the original historical context, this is really important to remember, this has to do originally with Israel and Israel's king. And in the ancient Near East, it was common for for kings who were installed to be considered sons of the God. 
And so even in ancient Egypt, you would see kings that are installed being considered son of the God. It's because it's like that saying, like father, like son, right? They're, they're meant to represent the God's rule on earth. And so the, the rule on earth is meant to be as it is in heaven. But we know, because we have the New Testament, it's very clear, really, that this, this son, Jesus himself, ultimately is the one who's being spoken here. Uh, he is the son of God to whom God has given the nations. Now, you might wonder when you read this, because we've just read from Ephesians, uh, that he's, he's been established. So has this happened yet? Has this psalm, and prophetic as it is, has this been fulfilled? Has Jesus been given authority over the ends of the earth? Well, I want to say yes and no. Yes, in one sense. Because as we already read in the call to worship, Jesus has been installed, he's been set in his office as king at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Ephesians 1 said it, that when God raised Jesus from the dead, he seated him at his, at his right hand, that place of authority, in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also that in the age that's to come. And so, yes, there's a sense in which Jesus currently is reigning over the nations. It's very clear in Ephesians. But how can that be, you might ask? Because uh, I don't think I've seen the wicked being dashed apart like vessels. We haven't seen that yet, have we? I don't think so. So we've got to remember uh, that even though Jesus has been appointed as king, and he has begun, his, he has started, he's inaugurated his kingdom, we're still waiting for him to return. We await his return where he will complete or consummate his kingdom. And so there's a sense in which he hasn't fully acted in that sovereign authority that he actually has in and of himself yet. But as we wait, as we await for that return of Christ when he will consummate all things, is it possible for us to get a glimpse of this kingdom that he's begun? Is it possible that we could see this kingdom? Because if it started, where's it at? Where would we find it? One simple way to think of the kingdom of God and this is something that Graham Goldsworthy came up with, and I found very helpful. Thinking about what does the kingdom of God mean, think of it this way. God's kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule. And so in at least one sense, wherever it is that we find people gathering together, to live under his rule, under his authority in life, you've seen a glimpse, you've seen a glimpse of the kingdom. So like us here this morning, for instance, local churches are like embassies of the kingdom of God. The church is not the kingdom of God, but there's sort of evidence that the kingdom of God exists and is real. Because here we are gathered together as his people in his place, under his rule, trying to submit to his authority. Not perfectly, right? Nobody perfectly submits to God, not perfectly, but sincerely at the very least, yes? Uh, the desire of our heart when we gather together is to do what is pleasing to God because we know that it brings him glory and it brings us good, even when, and perhaps particularly when, it's difficult for us to submit to his authority. And here in our particular church, we're obviously, if you think about it, geographically, very far from where Jesus was uh, we are, I think, the ends of the earth that is spoken about here. Those of us that have trusted in Christ, we are the four nations that have become his heritage. 
We are the ends of the earth. And it's really cool. Because at Trinity, I think it's kind of unique that we've got so many different nations represented here. There are folks really from around the world that have gathered here together. And we have one thing in common, and it's that we want to submit to the authority of Christ. We love Jesus, and we trust him as our, our Lord and Savior. And it's cool to be a part of a community that has so many different nations, the ends of the earth gathered here together in God's place. I know there's one brother and sister who've been here for years. They're ho- hoping to officially become American citizens soon. Got an interview coming up in July they're really excited about. But we know that they don't need to become American before they can become Christian, right? Because America is not God's kingdom. Those two things are different and separate. Yeah? We know that. It's, it's helpful, though, just to have a reminder, even on this 4th of July weekend, I am beyond grateful, as I mentioned before, to live in a country that allows us to worship, that allows us to live in, in freedom according to our own conscience, that provides uh, protection from enemies who would try to defeat us, uh, that is in favor of private ownership, of a free market, that was founded on, at least in part, some Christian principles. What a great heritage that we have. But it's been hard over the last years, uh, as we've seen that, that those Christian principles, those morals, those ethics, have been rapidly disappearing from public life. Those values that were once assumed and they were even celebrated, it's the flipped. They're being mocked. They're being ridiculed. We used to just assume that there was some overlap in American morality and the church's morality. And it's just become painfully obvious that that is not true. That relationship has been dissolving for for some time. And in some cases, we've seen it recently just across the spectrum of culture. We've seen it from Hollywood. We've seen it in Wall Street. God help us. We've seen it in the church where these morals, these ethics that seem to be pretty basic, like not abusing women, have been neglected, and it's been exposed. Maybe it's existed the whole time, but now we know about it. This rebellion against God's rule has been exposed, and it can be disorienting when it happens. You're like, man, I can't trust. Like, I, my American Christian heritage is gone. The church, like, there's, it turns out there's sinful people in the church. Where do I trust? Who do I go? Where is my confidence? Just remember that Jesus has promised that his church will last and his kingdom will last forever. His kingdom will come. Our best hope is not the promise of America's greatness because we have a bigger, we have a better promise that will not and cannot fail. We already know the end of the story. We see that the Messiah, when he comes, he judges the nation. Uh, this, this language here in Psalm 2 comes up again in Revelation, comes up again at the end of the Bible in the New Testament. There again, it speaks of the Son of God coming to, to rule the nations with a rod of iron to establish his kingdom of perfect justice and righteousness forever. If we remember that this, this kingdom that he's bringing cannot be shaken, it should help calm some of our anxiety. It should calm some of our nerves about what's going on around us right now. As I heard one pastor say, the angels that are rallied around Jesus in the throne room of heaven are not crying four more years. They're crying, the Lord reigns forever and ever. This king cannot be overthrown. He cannot be impeached because his authority has been given to him by the creator of all things. It is an impeachable authority. And that's 
wonderful news for us. That's wonderful news for us, friends, because he is the best king that we could ever possibly imagine. He's the best kind of king that we can possibly imagine. So that's, that's the third scene. The king declares the authority that has been given to him by God himself. And then in this final scene of the psalm, we're told that we're supposed to, what we're supposed to do with all this information. What exactly does all this mean for us? We've seen that the human authorities have planned to rebel against God and against his king, and that God is not afraid of their rebellion, and that in fact he has appointed his own king. And here in this final verse, we're going to see what it means for us. Scene four, we must submit to King Jesus while there's still time. Verses 10 to 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. If you've ever seen The Twilight Zone, you'll know that at the end of the episodes, Rod Serling comes out and he, does, he sort of explains the moral of the story. Like that, that might have been confusing for you guys, so I'm going to look through the camera, I'm going to talk to you guys and say, this is, this is what I was trying to say here in this, the moral of this story. And it's kind of like that here. Uh, the Holy Spirit, if it were, uh, is speaking to us here directly this morning, saying, if you didn't get that, here's what this means for you. This is not abstract truth. This is something that you must deal with even this morning. The Holy Spirit, through his word, through the psalmist, says, you guys, all of your rebellion, your planned rebellion against God and his good king, it's foolish and it's futile. First of all, you haven't realized that God's authority in your life is actually a good thing. It's not something that you should even want to cut away from. It's not something that you should be shunning. Like a rabid dog that's fighting against that, that shot that's going to make him better. Second, not only that, did you ever really think that you could defeat the creator of all things? Did you really think that you had a chance? Your resistance is futile. It's in, it's in vain. You've got a snowball's chance of Phoenix of becoming more powerful than the one who's created you from the beginning. Stop it. Quit. Quit rebelling and submit to the Lord. Serve him with fear. And this fear is not an anxious fear. This is not an anxious fear, but it's a settled, wise fear. It's a reverential fear. It's not emotional instability, but it's a settled wisdom. It's where wisdom begins is the fear of the Lord. Because he alone is to be feared, to be adored. Verse 12 says, kiss the son. It's another way of saying submit to the Lord. Pay homage to him. Maybe you've seen a movie or something uh, where there's a king who's on his throne in his throne room, and somebody comes into his throne room, and they take one knee, and they grab his hand, and they kiss the ring. Uh, it's sort of that same idea where they've come in, and they've, they're just submitting to his authority, just sort of submitting to him. So for the psalmist, again, this is about Israel originally. This is about Israel's king and the other nations needing to submit to God's king because he's appointed him. But we know again, don't we, that this son ultimately is Jesus. So he, here's the point of this psalm for you and I, here today, submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ while there's still time. This is the most wise decision that we can make because God himself has decreed that Jesus will rule the world. And it says in verse 12 that if you don't submit to him, you will perish in the way. In, in your rebellion, 
you will perish, and your judgment will come about suddenly. His, his, his anger is kindled quickly. That's what that means. It's going to come quickly like a thief in a night. Do you see here that this is, this is not an optional thing? Submitting to Jesus as Lord is not, it's not like an optional add-on to, to Christianity. At one point, everyone will submit. We see this in Philippians 2. It tells us that one day when Christ returns, every tongue everywhere is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is King. He is the Sovereign. But the question is, will you know the Lord as your Savior or as your judge? It's wise to submit to Jesus now, but it will be inevitable later. We've seen that he comes, and when he comes, he will execute justice swiftly and, 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 and completely. No one will stand. It's like taking a crack at a flower pot with an iron rod. Devastating judgment, shattering it apart. But look how the psalm ends. We didn't notice how this psalm ends. You talked before about how Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are, are related, sort of matched pairs. We didn't notice how the psalm ends. It says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Remember how Psalm 1 began. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of wicked, but meditates in the law of the Lord day and night. And Psalm 2 ends with that same word. That same word for blessed or blessed or happy. That's the word there at the end of Psalm 2. So Psalm 1 begins with blessing. Psalm 2 ends with blessing. Those who take refuge in Christ are blessed. They're happy. They're secure like a tree planted by life-giving water. What could, what could this mean to take refuge in the Son? To come under his protection? What does that even mean? How do we do that? Do we even need to? Friends, if we're honest, we need to recognize that we are part of that rebellion that was in scene one. That's where we belong in this four-act play. None of us have perfectly obeyed the rule of God in our lives. We've all tried to cut the ropes in some way or another. Why should we not consider ourselves part of that first scene? Why should we not be considered those who are due this wrath that is coming from the Son of God? I'm trying to tell you this. He's, he's a good king. This is, this is what I'm trying to tell you. And I want you to see this. I want you to see this very clearly. I've been trying to tell you he's a good king. And if you don't believe me, just meditate on this last line of verse 12 with me. Take refuge in him. When judgment comes, that judgment that is rightly due, that we agreed needs to come, when it comes, we are to take refuge in Christ. Even the one who's bringing that judgment, we find refuge in him. Seek shelter in him. Find him to be our our hiding place. So how is it that we can be taken refuge in this one who's coming to bring this devastating judgment upon the earth? Here's how that's possible. Our good king can be our shelter from the wrath of God because he took that wrath upon himself on the cross. That wrath that we deserve has already been poured out on him. We are not going to be shattered like clay pots because he was shattered in our place. He willingly took on that judgment for us. This is what we sing when we we sing, no wrath remains for us to, to face because we're sheltered by his saving grace. 
How can you refuse? How can we, bless us, how can we refuse that kind of loving authority? Friends, he was tied with ropes to a cross in order to face that judgment that we are doing. We want to shove off his ropes from us? Ah. He laid down his life for you, for me, so that we can take refuge from that wrath that is to come in him. He is our rock of ages. I'm trying to tell you he's a good king. On him, almighty vengeance fell, which would have sunk this world to hell. He bore it for a sinful race to make himself our hiding place. Friends, do you still think that those chains, those ropes, those cords, those bonds, do you still think that that's holding you back? Do you think that that's holding you back from freedom? Would you still despise even the mention of God's grace in Jesus Christ? Are you too proud to seek that hiding place? Do you think that you don't need a refuge? Are you fighting that foolish and futile fight against the God who sits in the heavens and laughs? Submit to the lordship of Jesus while there's still time. If he, in his word, says that something is clearly wrong, trust him. Don't try to rationalize your disobedience. If he says something is for your good, trust him. If this king who would humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, to save you from this wrath to come, how can you not trust him with all things? How can you refuse him? Now, friends, I'm not, I'm not just speaking to those who are here this morning that are self-consciously not Christian. And friends, I do hope that you're here this morning. I hope that you know that this is a safe place for non-Christians to be. We love you. We're glad that you're here. If you have questions, glad to speak with you after this service. But Psalm 2 is not just speaking to non-Christians. This has a message for everyone. Psalm 2 has a message even for those of us who think of ourselves as Christian. You might remember that Judas kissed the son, right? Do you remember when Judas kissed the son out of spite? Might it be possible that you have kissed the son, but you haven't actually done it with a heart of loyalty to this king? Maybe you haven't done it out of true submission. Have you just paid Jesus some lip service with the sinner's prayer, but his authority has made no actual change in your life? Are there areas in your life where you're fighting against Jesus' authority your relationships, your identity, your, what you should be watching on TV, who you need to be hanging out with. If you know that it's wrong, God's word says it's wrong, and your conscience, the Holy Spirit, is telling you, don't do this, this is wrong. That anxiety that you're feeling is a gift from God. Run. Flee. Take refuge in Christ. Ah. Don't fight against it. Submit to it. Because God help us, there might become a day when our conscience is hardened to the point that we don't even think that we need to take refuge. Humility is the key to becoming Christian and to being Christian. Just the honesty to be able to admit that I don't know what's best for me. I try to think that I do, but I don't. My biggest problems in life are not what's going on around me in the world. It's not what's happening on Twitter. It's what's going on in my heart and what comes out of my heart. If you're willing to admit that, submit to the Lordship of Christ... Friends, you're in a good place. You've taken refuge in Christ. My prayer is this morning that all of us would would leave wanting for God to bind our wandering hearts to him. Put those chains on me.
Give me your yoke. Give me your burden. It's light and it's joyful. Bring on those ropes and chains if it means I get to be with you. Save me from myself. You see how much this king loves you. I'm trying to tell you he's a good king. Trust him. Beloved, if you hear this warning from Psalm 2 this morning, do not resist it. May God right now, even in your seat, through his Holy Spirit, by the power of his word, bring you to your knees now in submission. It's for your good. It's for your good. Don't resist Jesus. Rest in him. Come in from the storm. Take refuge in the high of the hurricane that's going on all around you. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Rebellion to Jesus leads to death and destruction. Submission leads to life and happiness. Friend, which will it be? Who is your king? Join me in prayer.